We ended our last lesson with John 7.10, which stated the fact that when the Lord's half-brothers had gone up to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, then he also went up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Even though the Jews sought to kill him and he knew it, yet the Lord Jesus, in perfect submission and obedience to the will of his Father, went to Jerusalem in order to keep the feast. Why? Because... It was commanded that all male Jews would go to that particular feast and to others as well. God the Father had a plan for his son, for the Lord Jesus Christ. All of his steps were ordered of the Lord. Not only were all of his steps ordered by the Lord, but the timing of his steps were ordered by the Lord. And Jesus, of course, knew it. So he did not tempt the Father by rushing to the feast with his brothers and the other caravans, you know, they always traveled in caravans, and that was for safety purposes and fellowship purposes. So the, uh, he didn't travel with his brothers and the other caravans of Galilean pilgrims because that would have made him the center of attention when he arrived in Jerusalem. So he didn't rush the Father, nor did he remain in Galilee and not obey the law about going to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. Instead, at just the right moment... Exercising caution and not courting danger, he went to Jerusalem. And of course, the last week we talked about some of the events that he encountered on his way to Jerusalem. He well, first of all, he he encountered those three would-be disciples, and then he passed through Samaria. And we talked about what happened when one particular Samaritan village refused to let him lodge for the evening. But it says that he went when he did go. He went as it were in secret. He went in secret, meaning that he went privately. He went without all the pomp and ceremony and the great fanfare that his arrival could have had. You know, the Lord Jesus, if he had arrived in Jerusalem at this point in his life with a whole lot of Galilean pilgrims who had seen him perform all kinds of miracles and were still, you know, abundantly surrounding him, even though most of them didn't believe in him, and he had arrived in a caravan that, with a lot of pomp and ceremony. What we would have had, and, and when we're going to get to today's lesson, you'll see that he was the subject of conversation among all the millions of people that were assembled there for the feast. So if he had arrived early, you know what would have happened? It would have been a triumphal entry. The people would have been hailing him as they did on Palm Sunday. But it wasn't yet Palm Sunday, was it? So it would have been rushing God's timetable because he was, he was scheduled to die on the Passover. The Passover would not be for another six months. So he did everything perfectly. He came in secret in the midst, at the midst of the feast. So around the third or fourth day of the feast, he arrived. And he was going to step forward and suddenly appear in the temple. You remember what it said in Malachi 3.1, I believe it is. I kept meaning to look that up, but I didn't. Here, if you'll see if that's true. Where it says that when the Messiah came, he would suddenly appear in his temple. Well, he's already fulfilled that prophecy the first time he arrived in Jerusalem uh, once he began his earthly ministry, and he cleansed it. That was a fulfillment of suddenly arriving in his temple. But here we really have sort of a second fulfillment of that. Because he arrives secretly in the middle of the feast, and the first time people see him, there he is, suddenly appearing in the temple, openly, publicly speaking. So in doing that, he shows he certainly didn't fear the Jews, and we'll talk about that. But um, our lesson this morning, did I tell you it's lesson number 86 in your books? We're going to discuss this morning the various debates and disputes that were going on in Jerusalem both prior to the Lord's arrival and then following his sudden appearance in the temple when he began to teach the people. So that's where we're going. We're going to cover five different parts of our outline. We're going to talk about arguments over Christ's character, astonishment over Christ's doctrine, accusation of Christ's person, anger over Christ's work, and ambivalence over Christ's origin. So let's begin by looking at arguments over his, per, his character. And for this, we look at John 7, starting in verse 11, 11 to 13. After it says, But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up 
unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. That's in verse 10. Then at verse 11 says, then the Jews, and that always refers to the religious rulers, sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. All right, we'll stop right there. During the first days of the Feast of Tabernacle, as people all about were you know, busy setting up their booths, they would come, some of the people would come early so they'd have plenty of time to socialize with friends they hadn't seen in a while and set up their booths all around the wall of the city. While they're doing that, the religious rulers under the leadership of the Sanhedrin, you remember the Sanhedrin is the the ruling council of Israel, consisted of 70 scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and one high priest. Um, They were looking, they were combing the city, talking to everybody that they encountered, and asking the question, where is he? Who were they talking about? Jesus. They figured, they knew his character, they knew his person, they knew that he obeyed the law, didn't they? Although they had a problem with his Sabbath obedience, but they figured that he would be there for the feast. So they're looking for him, and, uh, and that's a good thing. You have to commend them. It's good that they're looking for Jesus. It's a good thing to search for Jesus, although we can't really commend them because we know their motive was wrong. They weren't searching for Jesus so that they could learn from him and that they could fall at his feet and worship him. We really miss the contempt in their words. All we see in our English is the question, where is he? But if you look at the original Greek, the word he is ekinos, and it is exactly the same word that is used in Matthew 27, 63, and I want you to go over there and look at it. Exactly the same word in Matthew 27, 63 was a word again used by the Jews, the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they demanded of Pilate that the Lord's tomb, this was after the Lord was crucified, they went to Pilate and they demanded that he seal the tomb so that his disciples wouldn't come along and steal the body. So they said to Pilate in Matthew 27, 63, Sir, they're talking to Pilate, remember that that echinos, and what does it say in your English? Remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. That is exactly, now you can go back to John 7, that's exactly the same Greek word that is used of him by these Jews as they search for him, uh, asking the people, where is that echinos? So really what they're asking is, Where is that deceiver? And it was by this scornful question of theirs that the people who were packing the city, you know, these people had come from all around, all over. Jews who were scattered everywhere came to Jerusalem for this feast. So these people packing the city realized very soon, because of their question, that their spiritual leaders felt rather negatively about Jesus. I mean, calling him a deceiver. They got the picture. So rather than um, talking openly about Jesus among themselves, they realize we we better not speak openly about him. So they begin to whisper and and murmur among each other and the debate, you know, who who they thought he was. We'll get to that in a minute. But think about the religious rulers. Here was an opportunity for them to go about among the people, I mean, they're supposed to be the shepherds of the flock. Their flock is scattered all over, and they have these three times a year that the men at least come together in Jerusalem. They should have been, I would think, going around, getting acquainted with the people, shaking their hands, welcoming them to the city, trying to serve them, encouraging them in their, in their love and service to the Lord, and, and uh, you know, worshiping the Lord God with these people. And instead, what are these false shepherds doing? They're going among the people just for the purpose of trying to find the Son of God, who they call a deceiver, and uh, all they want to do is find him and discredit him publicly so that they can then kill him, do away with him. And throughout this time, while the religious rulers are combing the city for Jesus, 
we are told that the people are murmuring about him and the debate about him that they are having all the people figured he's going to show up we've heard a lot about him he can perform miracles and so there's a debate among many of the people who is he the, the debate is about their character his character really more than who he is but it's about his character some argued that he was a what a good man some said he was a good man they knew enough about him maybe they had met him already on one occasion or they at least had heard enough about him to know and to admit that he was a good man they saw his compassion they saw his concern for people they understood that he was a giving person was always giving of himself that he was unselfish that he was loving he was caring he was moral he was just he he obeyed the law except for that little sabbath thing you know but they they knew enough you know to know he'd healed probably many of them probably had healed many of their friends and neighbors and loved ones and so they knew enough about him to say that he was a good man but although this is true is jesus a good man yeah it's true but it sure doesn't go far enough it falls far short of the truth of of the total truth yes he was he was a good man but he was not merely a good man he was much more than a man he was god incarnate he was the god man he was he was really the creator he's he's almighty god he's ever, the everlasting father the prince of peace king of kings the lord of lords the whole you know everything so to merely speak well of jesus as many people in the world do including even his enemies muslims and jews will say yes jesus was a good man uh people will say he was a good teacher he was a good prophet they admit that he was a prophet like the muslims admit that he was a prophet uh people will say he was a good human example but to speak that way of jesus is to speak far too lowly of him and it certainly isn't enough to get a person saved is it just to say he's a good teacher good example good person good man what do you have to acknowledge to be saved he's you have to say like peter thou art the christ you know there's a big difference between the little the what is the an a what are they called the definite article the and the word a for example if i say that um that terry is a good person what does that imply she's a good yeah a among many a. but if i said terry is the good girl i would be lying <laughs> but it would imply that she is the good girl in this whole group here she's the good one the rest of us i guess was <laughs> a big difference between a and the a implies one of many he's a good man and there's many good men but to do like peter did and say thou art the christ that means there's one and only you are the christ the son the only son of the living god there's a big difference between that and to, <laughs> furthermore uh, um where am i i lost my a debate have you ever turned on the television and heard unsaved people debating about jesus and his character oh it drives me to distraction it is so frustrating all their debating gets them absolutely nowhere debating about jesus among the unsaved is solely a mind activity you know you don't need there's no need for further debate about who jesus is and about his character his person once you have submitted to him once you have just submitted to him then you know who he is And there's no more need to debate about who he is. Uh in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, so some said he's a good man, and yet others said he's not a good man at all. He certainly is not a good man. He's a deceiver. He is leading the people astray with all his claims to being the Messiah, his claims to being the son of God, having been sent from God, you know, and calling God his father. He's giving people a false hope. So there were basically two sides to the argument that we see here about Christ's character. Some said he was a good man, others said he was a deceiver. The fact of the matter, however, was that he was he was neither. He could not just have been a good man. 
You can't just say he's a good man or a good teacher because a good person does not say that he is one with God the Father if he isn't and still be good. Because if he tells people something that isn't true, he's not good because he's what? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. So you can't just be a good man because good men do not claim to be the son of God unless they are. Otherwise, they fall into the category of being a deceiver. Now, they could have said that he was a perfect man. If they had used perfect, they would have been correct because he was the perfect, a perfect man because there is only one perfect man. There was another one once upon a time, but he didn't stay perfect for very too long, did he? And who was that? Adam. So the only two options that there really are was that Jesus was either a liar or he is who he claimed to be and he is Lord. Now, he could have been a liar who purposely lied. He could have been a purposely deceitful person. Now, think about that for a while. If he was purposely deceitful, there were some things that were absolutely amazing. How could a baby be born from the right ancestry, exactly the right lineage, and have both of his parents, was stepfather, we know, but both of them go back to King David, you know, through the tribe of Judah and all the way back to Abraham, etc. How could a baby in his mother's womb be born in exactly the right place at the right time in history? You know, how could he, how could he work it out so that he was born in Bethlehem. And then when he was little, work it out so that he went to Egypt because Hosea says that he would bring his son out of Egypt. And how could he work it out as a little child that he would go to live in Nazareth because the scripture says that he would be called a Nazarene. All these things. If he was a deceiver, pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing to do all the right things, be born of a virgin and all that. Uh, but, but so let's say that he was a liar. He either purposely lied, he was purposely deceitful, or he could have been self-delusionally, self-delusional deceitful. You know, that isn't the right way to say it, but he could have thought that he really was who he said that he was, but he wasn't. He would have deceived himself. So that would have made him really a lunatic. But you think, just read through the Sermon on the Mount, or pick any one of his sermons and tell me that those are the words of a lunatic. Nobody in the world says Jesus was a lunatic. I mean, if they've ever read any of his writings, say he's, if he was a lunatic, you know what? I'd like to be called a lunatic because never was anyone, never spake any man like he. Such profound wisdom. People know he wasn't a lunatic. But you either have that choice. That's it. He was a liar or he was Lord. That's it. And you know, if Jesus was a deceiver, think about this. If Jesus was a deceiver, he was the most evil and deceptive man that this world has ever, ever seen. Do you know how many people have been would have been deceived by him? Do you know how different this world is because Jesus of Nazareth was born into it? Do you know our calendars are based on his birth? He turned the world upside down. The world is not the same world that it used to. You and I as women have so much more f freedom and um, respect because Jesus Christ walked this world. Nobody, nobody says, really, even his enemies, even the Jews. Well, let me, I'm jumping the gun here. I had to take logic when I was in college, and I enjoyed it. But, you know, I think most people don't logically think through everything. There's a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you take the evidence to a court about Jesus Christ, you have to come out with a verdict that he was who he said he was. It's by Josh McDowell, if you've never read that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But if Jesus was a deceiver and said he was the Christ, you know, God promised to send his anointed. The Jews are still looking for him because they don't understand he, Jesus was him. But if he was, was not the Christ, then he had to have been the Antichrist because he claimed he was the Christ. So if he wasn't the Christ, he was the Antichrist. And yet that doesn't really fit with eschatology, of course, and what we're told in the scripture 
about the Antichrist. And even, as I said, his enemies, those who do not believe in him, like the Jews and the Muslims, I'm just taking those two groups of people, do not say that he was the Antichrist. I don't hear anybody really saying that Jesus was the Antichrist. You know why? Because they know he was not an evil person. They know he was a loving, good person. So they know he wasn't the Antichrist. But really, you only have those two choices. He was either the Christ or the Antichrist. And I know he wasn't the Antichrist. All right. Anyway, well, throughout all of this dis- this discussion, this murmuring that was going on uh, among the festival crowds, yet no one spake openly because of what? Their fear of the Jews. In other words, they, all the debating that went on was in whispered, muted tune, tune, uh, tunes, tones because the people really feared their religious rulers. And the reason they feared them is because they had the, the clout to desynagogue them. They could excommunicate them from synagogue life. And that, that was the biggest fear anyone had because not only did that destroy them socially, uh, spiritually, that they couldn't go to the temple and they couldn't go to the synagogue, but socially. And every other way, they were just totally ostracized from society if they were desynagogued. So no matter what side of the debate they took, whether they said that he was a good man or he was a deceiver, and you notice nobody in the crowd is saying he is the Christ. Nobody's saying that he is who he said he was. They are saying he's either just a good man or he's a deceiver. But nobody was talking about him openly because they didn't want to arouse suspicion that they might possibly be followers of him and endanger themselves with the authorities because they, like I said, they knew the authorities could um, do them some damage and desynagogue them. It's interesting that the, the, um, the one thing that united the people, now remember these people came from all over, all around, the one thing that united the people was their fear of their religious leaders. And the one thing that united the religious leaders, and remember they come from all different sects. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees, who disagree and hate the Sadducees, who all hate and disagree with the Herodians, and the Essenes are out there somewhere, and then they don't like the Zealots. None of them get along with each other. But the one thing that unites all of them is what? Their hatred of, of Jesus, exactly. <clears throat> and because of the, their obvious hatred, the people soon came to realize that it was a dangerous thing to manifest any interest in Jesus, at least openly. And Proverbs 29, 25 tells us what? The fear of man brings a snare. It traps us. You know, if we put the fear of man above the fear of God, it's a snare. We trip and fall on it. And because of that, many, many people have not come to salvation in Jesus Christ. What is the beginning of knowledge? And the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. All right, let's look at verses 14 to 19. It says, Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, straight to the temple when he got there, and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Who sent him? His Father, God. If any man will, this is a very important verse, verse 17. He says, here's a test of how someone can know if his doctrine is the doctrine of God or his own. He says, if any man will do his will. That shows we have choice, free choice, don't we? If we will, if any man will do his will, God's will, He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. He's claiming his perfection there. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? All right, we'll stop there for this section. Astonishment over his doctrine. At about the halfway point of the feast, the third or fourth day, Jesus suddenly shows up and he goes straight to the temple. What does that tell us about his fear of man? Did it make a snare for him? No way. He didn't fear any man. 
he went straight to the temple, was not afraid of who who would show up to grab him or kill him or any of that kind of thing. He didn't care. He showed up in the temple, and what did he begin to do? Teach, of course. His business was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and he would be faithful to that call everywhere he went. Now, we don't know what he taught that day because it isn't recorded for us, but we can assume it was probably very similar to the teaching he had taught when he was up in Galilee. <clears throat> but he, he, his trust was in the Lord. And by the way, I don't have time to get into that. But if you, in your notes, it was another fulfillment of messianic prophecy that he didn't fear what man could do to him. It says in Isaiah 50, verses 7 to 9, I believe this is in your books. This is the passage where we get that he set his face like flint. And he said, you know, who will I fear? I'm not going to fear anybody. I will not be confounded. I've set my face. Uh, behold, the Lord God will help me. His trust, you see, was in his father, in God his father. So he didn't fear anyone. <clears throat> and that wasn't the reason he showed up in the midst of the feast. was because of his fear. It was because he was on God's timetable, and we've already discussed that. Well, as Jesus taught, his hearers marveled at his teaching as men always did when they heard Jesus talk. That's, I mean, men throughout history, when they have studied the words of Jesus, have marveled, like I said before. No one looks at his words and says, he's a lunatic, because they, they just marvel o over the prof profoundness of his words and the wisdom of his words. So his audience was marveling and saying, in essence, how did this man get such learning without having studied? To the Jewish way of thinking, there was only one road to gain knowledge of theological matters, and that was through the schools of the prophets, the, the, the rabbinical schools, you know, or sitting at the feet of some scholarly scribe or rabbi, such as Paul, you know, when he was studying to be a Pharisee, whose feet did he sit at? The feet of Gamaliel, the famous rabbi Gamaliel. Um, we only saw Jesus sitting at the feet of some of the, the teachers of the law one time. And actually, who was teaching who in that occasion? He was really teaching them, and he was only 12 years old. <laughs> uh, but they said, how, you know, he didn't go to the first rabbinic school of Jerusalem. How did he get all of this, this wisdom? This how does he know the, the Torah like he does? And um, he hadn't even traveled abroad. Now, the philosophers back in those days used to travel abroad. And they would, you know, have their, have their vision of the world expanded, and then they'd come back and they'd develop their philosophies, and everybody thought they were so intelligent. But he never traveled abroad. He was a local yokel who hardly ever left his, you know, little um, country the size of New Jersey. So they marveled that he had such an incredible acquaintance with the scriptures. <laughs> Why do you think he had such an, in an incredible acquaintance with the scriptures? I got a secret for you all. You know it. He wrote them. He's the author of them. But in his humanity, now this is a mystery and it's hard for us to understand this. He wrote them as God because he's the author and finisher of our faith and he's the author of scripture. He's the word. Uh, but in his humanity, he did have to study. He had to sit at the feet of his father, who was a godly man, the feet of his mother, who was a godly woman, and learn the scriptures. He had to memorize them. But because he was sinless, he had a perfect mind. So he could probably take this whole page here, look at it, and have it memorized. Now, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, he had a perfect sinless mind. But still, he had to be diligent in his study, and he did have to study, if, if we can understand that, his, his God-man situation. But they marveled. The people marveled that he had such an incredible acquaintance with the Scriptures. He taught with far greater authority and majesty and eloquence than any of their esteemed religious teachers. So how could he do this without having been to their, their schools of higher learning? And what right did he have to teach them? You know, he didn't have a Ph.D. behind his name, so what right did he have to teach them? And what right did he have to teach their teachers? He was trying to teach their teachers, and they needed to learn a lot, didn't they? Have you ever had anybody ask you what right you have if you're teaching? I remember one time a man who had his collar turned around backwards asked me what right I had to teach the Bible. You know, you've never been, you've never been to Bible uh, Well, he didn't call it Bible school, but I hadn't been to the right places and learned the right things. And I said, well, the Holy Spirit 
uses his word to teach me and it was like what <laughs> but he didn't have all the right credentials according to them you know it's too bad that it was their curiosity that was aroused instead of their consciences it would have been better if their consciences had been aroused as to what he was teaching you know that he convicted them by his words instead of how they were focusing on his schooling they were more they were more instead of being focusing on his claims to being who he was instead they were all uh, focused on his schooling it wasn't his message that convicted them and challenged them it was the manner of its delivery that captivated them you know how knoweth this man letters having never learned he's just a galilean he's from despicable nazareth we know his dad he's just a carpenter you know how did he get such learning <clears throat> he didn't have the diplomas to make it understandable why he could teach the scripture as as he did so they were utterly astonished. But notice he doesn't defend himself about that situation. You know, why he doesn't have a doctorate in front of his name. Instead, he told them how it was that he could teach as he did. He said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. His doctrine, you see, was not the product of human education. It was not the product of human thought or natural powers that had been developed through a lot of reading and studying and sitting at the feet of different rabbis in conversation with other men. It was divine revelation. Now, as God himself, Jesus could have said in that verse, verse 16, he could have said that his doctrine was his own. Couldn't, couldn't he? Couldn't he have made that claim? because he is God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He could have said that his doctrine was his. So why did he say instead that it was not his, but that it came from him that sent him? Well, it's because, again, we have to remember that he is speaking um, from his state of humility. He was incarnate God at this point in time. He is the God-man. He is God, you know, who took upon himself the likeness of man, made, you know, and put himself veiled himself in human flesh God limited in a human body he was not speaking here from the standpoint of his Godhead glory but he is speaking here from the, the standpoint of being the son of God incarnate and he say, say much the same thing later on when we get into John chapter 8 he said as my father hath taught me I speak these things actually he repeats this a lot when we look at his teaching in the, in the next few years as we'll be studying his life as he gets closer to the cross. He says it over and over again. You know, he always spoke and taught about and glorified who? His father. Jesus always gave the glory and always spoke about his father. Now, when the Holy Spirit came, who does the Holy Spirit always point to? You know, any church that elevates the Holy Spirit over Jesus is wrong. Because the Holy Spirit came to magnify and lift up Jesus and to glorify him and to talk about him. Just like when Jesus came, he always magnified, lifted up, spoke about God the Father. They're all equal, but there's that hierarchy within, you know, the roles. Like you and I are equal with our husbands, and but there's the hierarchy of the father, the, the, the husband, the wife, and the children. Same thing within the Trinity. So here he's speaking as the Son of God. But with this statement that he made, the people should have realized yet another fulfillment of prophecy because we've talked about this prophecy before. It's Deuteronomy 18, 18, you know, where it sp Moses spoke of the great prophet that God would send from among their own brethren, among the Jewish people, who would be a deliverer like unto himself, like unto Moses. God would send a prophet like unto Moses who would deliver his people. And God promised this. In Deuteronomy 18, he said that he, God, would put his words into this prophet, this deliverer's mouth. And it says, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So in saying that what he spoke was from God the Father, he was being in perfect alignment with what was already predicted about the coming Messiah. You see? 
You know, Jesus came, you can always remember this very easily, Jesus came to do three things. They all start with R. He came <coughs> to reveal God to man. We want to know what God is like? He came to reveal to us what God is like. He came to reveal. He came to redeem. He came to redeem man back to God. And the third thing he came to do was what? Reign. Now, he was rejected, so he doesn't yet sit as king of kings and lord of lords and reign over this world. He will yet reign, literally. But in the meantime, he does reign over the hearts of those who have been redeemed, right? So to reveal, to redeem, and to reign. <clears throat> it's interesting back in John 5:17 that Jesus claimed he and the Father were one in their works. Remember when he said, my Father worketh hitherto and I work? They both, he said, we're one in our works. And then he claimed in John 5.30 that he and the Father were one in their judgment. And now here he's claiming that they are one in their doctrine. What is doctrine? Another word for doctrine is simply teaching. They're one in their teaching. They're one in their words. <clears throat> you know, when you and I teach the Bible... We can claim authority for the Bible itself. I can stand up here and say, thus saith the word of God, and claim authority for what I read right from this book. But we cannot claim absolute divine authority for all of our interpretations of it, can we? We can't. But Jesus could. He could rightly claim absolute divine authority for every single word he read from the Scripture and every single interpretation he gave of the Scripture. And it's interesting, I do have this in your books, but he did, when um, he spoke, he said doctrine singular. Do you notice that? Now, whenever it refers in the scripture to the doctrines of men or the doctrines of demons, it always uses the plural. You know why? Because the doctrines of men and the doctrines of, of demons are diversified. They're multifaceted. They're, they're different. They don't agree. There's all, there are all kinds of them. They're doctrines. But when he speaks about God's doctrine, it's singular because there's no unity. There's no harmony in the doctrines of demons and the doctrines of men. But is there unity and harmony and a cohesiveness, a oneness in the doctrine of God? Yes. This book is one whole harmonious book. It's the doctrine of God. So he went on to say that the way for a person to know if what he taught was from God or whether he merely spoke on his own was for that one to be willing to do the will of God. The Lord's enemies, you see, were saying that his teaching was nothing but his own private, rabbinically untaught, non-seminary <laughs> opinions. They had called him a deceiver. The religious rulers had already said he did his works in the power of Beelzebub. So why would any, you know, he wasn't worth listening to is what they were saying. Why would anyone want to listen to a deceiver? Do you purposely want to listen to a deceiver? Now, sometimes I probably have listened to a deceiver, and maybe I've been deceived for a while. I hope my discernment is enough to pretty soon pick up on it and not be deceived any longer. But there are a lot of deceivers out there in the world. We have to be careful what we listen to, don't we? We really, really need to be careful because there are a lot of deceivers and you don't want to be foolish and be deceived by a deceiver. Many, many millions and billions of people have been de deceived by deceivers and many of them in ecclesiastical garb, right? So beware. So how is it that you and I can know if what Jesus taught is true? Here's the key. By obeying what God the Father tells us to do. God's word proves itself to be true to those who sincerely obey it. How many of you have found that to be true? Raise your hand. Good. That's good. That's good. John 17, 7, 17, John 7, 17 literally says this, and this is, put a little star at that verse. Literally in the original Greek, it says, if any man is willing to do his, God's will, he shall know. You know, if you really want to know if Jesus is who he said he was and that his teaching truly is from God and not his own teaching, it was, God, it was straight from God, then what do you do? You be willing to do the will of God. So Jesus is laying down a principle here of great practical importance. 
the fundamental condition for obtaining spiritual knowledge of God's truth is to have a genuine heart desire to do the revealed will of God in our lives. Even if we don't understand it, if we'll simply do it. And what is his first will? That none should perish, that all would come to believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever the heart is genuinely set on knowing truth, and I believe this, if somebody's even in the middle of Timbuktu or Siberia, wherever you put them on the face of this world, if someone is genuinely desiring to know the truth, God supplies the answer. I believe that. Absolutely, I believe that. The key to knowledge is to honestly practice what we already know. If we willfully will use the light that we have, you know what we find out? You get more light. It's like a rheostat. It just keeps getting brighter and brighter. If you live up to the light you have within you, he'll give you more light. It's keep being obedient, give you more light, you more light. So in a sense, yeah, it is sense, it is true that by doing, we will come to the point of knowing. By doing, we will come to the point of knowing. This living up to the light that God has placed within each of us, we'll talk about that in a minute, is exactly what Hosea the prophet predicted. Now here's another, go over to Hosea 6.3 if you can find him. And uh, <clears throat> 6.3 is an important verse. It, goes, it ties in exactly with John 7.17. 7, Hosea 6.3, this is exactly what he's talking about when he says, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. You see, how do you know the Lord? How do you, by following on to continue on knowing him, which is what we're doing in this study. We keep following on to know more and more about him. You see, God has put the knowledge of himself into every man. Romans 1.19 tells us he has put the knowledge of himself. Now, education and society and, you know, people will try to brainwash that knowledge out of us, but he has put the knowledge of himself into everyone. He has revealed himself to man everywhere, no matter where they live. He has revealed himself to them by his creation. I know even before I was saved, I could not look up at the stars of heaven without saying to myself, there has got to be a God. This is just too magnificent. We have peacocks. How can you look at a, uh, the, the peacocks, the male's tail, which is right now in full bloom, <laughs> and not believe in a creator, designer, intelligent designer, a God? You know, he's written a knowledge of himself in, our, in the creation. Furthermore, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he has written eternity in our hearts. Every man knows intuitively that there is something else out there. There is an eternity. There's something greater out there. And that's why there's religions, you know, because people are searching for, for what it is. So we know intuit instinctively that he exists. Jesus encourages us to humbly use what little knowledge we have so that he can delight to give us more. His greatest delight is giving us more light and truth. Satan, you know, think about back in the Garden of Eden. Satan offered man knowledge, didn't he? He said, oh, don't listen to God. Go ahead, you can eat. God is jealous. He just doesn't want you to be as wise as him. Uh, but if you go ahead and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll have knowledge. Satan offered man knowledge, but it was knowledge based on disobedience. Christ comes along and he offers us knowledge, but it's based on what? Obedience. It's based on obedience. First comes the yoke of obedience and responsibility. And then comes the joy of knowing God's truth. Isn't that, first of all, a step of faith? But once you've stepped in faith, then he gives you more knowledge and more assurance that you can ever, ever comprehend. I mean, I wouldn't trade my knowledge of knowing that Christ is who he said he was and knowing that I can bank my life on the, the truth of this word, I wouldn't trade that for anything and everything in the world. Would you? 
knowing that, that no matter what happens to me or my family or anyone, no matter what happens to this wicked old world we're living in, I know ultimately where I'm going to be in eternity. I wouldn't trade that for nothing. <laughs> G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, when men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then gain confidence in the divine inspiration of Scripture and to have assurance of their salvation. They don't have to go to Bible college. Now, I'm not saying that those are bad things. Of course, we want our men in the pulpits to be grounded in God's Word, don't we? So, you know, it's a good thing, depending on the seminary. Some of them are cemeteries, but... But I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, that they shouldn't be educated in God's word. But spiritual knowledge, and I'm glad for this, that spiritual knowledge doesn't come through the intellect. <laughs> I don't know our IQs, but I doubt any of us in this room. Now, there may be an exception, but I doubt any of us have the tippity-top of the IQ um, curve. Thank you. Now, I look at some of your intelligent faces, and maybe that's not true, but <laughs> it certainly is a true in my case. I'm glad that my knowledge of who God is and the Scripture doesn't come through my intellect. Where does it come, ladies? We've talked about a million times. It comes through the heart. It is, not, it, it is acquired by exercising faith. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that without faith, or that we, we, by faith, we understand. And without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The knowledge of the world? No. The Word of God. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. So we step out with our hearts in faith, and then he gives us all the light and the knowledge and the proof we, that we want in our minds. You know, the reasoning follows the faith. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing in this old world makes better sense to me than this book. Nothing is more practical to my daily life than this book. Nothing is more logical, and I like logic. Nothing is more logical. Nothing is more dignified. Nothing is more sensible. I don't find all that out in the world. I mean, I don't find any sense and reason <laughs> to a lot of what the world is doing. Nothing is more, more coherent. Nothing is more organized. Nothing is more systematic. Nothing is more all-purposeful for all people of all generations, of all different backgrounds. Nothing is more wisdom-packed than this book right here. Nothing. Well, Jesus went on to present a second way. That's the first way to test if what he says is of God. A second way to test if what he taught was from God, he told the people, was to take note whether he spoke of himself or of God. Now, who is the Antichrist going to come speak about? Oh, yeah, he's all about himself. All Antichrists, plural, are all about themselves. It says he'll set up an image of himself in the temple, and he'll magnify himself, and he'll blaspheme God. That's how you know the true from the false. He said, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. He would be seeking his own glory if he was an imposter, if he was a deceiver. He would be seeking, he would be all about himself. You know what he would have done to begin with? He would have done what Satan t tempted him to do. He would have gone to Jerusalem, gone up to the pinnacle of the temple and jumped and let the angels catch him and show everybody who he was. It would have been all about him. He would have let them crown him king after he gave them the bread of uh, before he gave them the bread of life sermon, after he fed the 5,000. He would have accepted the crown. He would have gone into Jerusalem with a caravan of Galilean pilgrims and let them throw their palm branches and say he's, he's the long-awaited um, son of David and let, you know, cry. Would he have girded himself about with a, a towel and washed dirty disciples' feet? No. The, the true servant, the genuine servant of God, 
would not seek his own glory, but he would seek the glory of the one who sent him. If we really seek God's will, then we will not be concerned over who gets what? Who gets the glory? Because all truth belongs to who? It all, all truth belongs to God. And so we shouldn't be concerned about who gets the glory. And I, I, I really mean this next week when I say, please, please, please don't try to give me any glory. Nothing I ever say up here is original. I'm just regurgitating God's truth. And I hope I'm, I shouldn't use that word, regurgitate. But <laughs> sharing, that's much more polite. Sharing God's truth. <laughs> but he, he, he's a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with anyone else. Let's just lift him up. Let's praise him. Let's, you know, honor. He alone deserves all the glory and majesty and blessing and praise. All, all belongs to him. And, and everything that we're learning is through his word, by his Holy Spirit, and it's all about his son, isn't it? Um, Deceivers seek their own glory. Cheats speak of themselves, but true ambassadors speak not of themselves, but of the one who commissioned them. You know how you can you can test someone to see whether, like like a man in the pulpit, to see whether he was called of God to the ministry, or rather, perhaps has rushed to the pulpit without being called. Ask yourself: Does he magnify himself, or does he magnify the Lord? I remember one time years ago tuning into a program on television, and it was a local, not, not local here, I was out of state, and there was a local preacher on there, and I started listening to him, and I heard, I, 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 me, 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 and I never heard Jesus Christ. Fifteen minutes of that, I never heard him once say Jesus Christ. I just heard him talking about himself. Didn't take too long to figure out, hmm, hmm. This man is not magnifying the Lord. I don't think he was called of the Lord to the pulpit. Um, we ask ourselves, does they seek his own glory? Does he say, um, as Paul, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord? Is the general trend of someone's ministry, behold me, or uh, behold the ministry that I am building, behold the church that I am building, or is the general trend of his ministry, behold the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist got it right, you know? We must decrease and he must increase. In verse 19, he completely then turned the tables. I'm going to just have to whip through this and probably read it and just tell you about it as we go. But he turned the tables on the Jews. They had said he was a deceiver, but uh, now he charges them you know, they said, how could he know the letters and be unlearned? And now he says, well, you know the letter of the law, and yet you fail to obey it. He says, uh, didn't Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to do what? To kill me. You see, the Jews accepted the fact that the law came through Moses, but really came from God. And they even claimed to submit to the law because they did believe it came from God. However, Jesus said to them, even though they knew that the law had its origin in God, yet they still did not obey it. Because one of the laws was thou shalt not kill. And what were they planning to do in their hearts? To kill him. So basically he's saying he knew it. He knew they were planning to kill him, and they knew it. So he's saying, you're hypocrites. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. He may have been unschooled by their standard, but they, worse, they were hypocrites by God's standard. Well, let's look at verse 20. This is when the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. When the people heard him say that the Jews wanted to kill him, they said, you're crazy. Our, you know, they had such high esteem of their, they feared them, but they also had a high esteem of their religious rulers. And they said, basically, they would never do that. They would never kill an innocent man. They would never kill anybody. So they had this high esteem, a false high esteem of their religious rulers, but they also had a very low esteem of Jesus. Because one minute ago, they were calling him a good man. Some in this crowd were saying that he was a good man. And look how fickle they are. How quickly they turned the tables and said, 
Thou hast a devil. Now they're really following their religious rulers, aren't they? Because their religious rulers had already concluded that he was in league with Satan. So they're saying basically to him, you're crazy, you have a devil. Well, verse 21, he answers and he says, I have done one work and ye all marvel. And we read that, we say, what? What is he talking about there? What he's doing is telling the Jews among them that he knows what they're thinking. Remember back to the last time he was in Jerusalem? He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. That's the work he's talking about here. And the word marvel is, means here, indignant. You know, I did one work and you're all indignant. Well, go back to John 5 real quick. This was the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. John 5, he healed the man who had sat paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. Look at verse 16. Because he did that, on the Sabbath day, it says, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. They wanted to kill him, and he knew it all the way back then, last time. And so basically he's showing the Jews in the crowd here on the Feast of Tabernacles that he's omniscient. He knows what they were planning. And then he went on in verse 17 and said, uh, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And it says in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So what he's really... Go back now to John 7, and let's look what he says. <clears throat> He says, um, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. He says, "You want? I know you Jews wanted to kill me because I did that work on the Sabbath day. But now notice he goes ahead again and calls them a bunch of hypocrites. Not in so many words, but let's read what he says. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? You know what he's saying there? He's saying your own system allows for exceptions on the Sabbath day. You know that if a little baby boy turns eight days old, and according to the law, he needs to be circumcised, or at least the law of the fathers, he needs to be circumcised, and that's on the Sabbath day, you'll go ahead and do what? You'll circumcise him anyway, because that's an act of necessity. And you know that the priests work the hardest on what day of the week? He says this somewhere else, not here. But that the priest worked on the Sabbath. Another occasion, he says, you know, if you have an ox that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, are you going to just let it sit there and not go and get it until the next day? No. You know you would get your ox out of the pit if it fell on the Sabbath day. So what he's saying here is you're a bunch of hypocrites. You would wound a little baby boy on the Sabbath and say that's okay. But you hate me to the point of wanting to kill me when I made a man completely whole. I didn't wound him. I made him every whit whole. He had been paralyzed for 38 years, and I did a good thing. It was an act of mercy. See, the, the Sabbath law, of course, he could do anything he wanted because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But the Sabbath allowed for works of worship, works of mercy, and works of necessity. And that's all he's saying to them. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. Verse 24, he says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Basically, he's saying, you know, don't just look at the outward. Don't be hasty in your decisions. Judge righteous judgment. All right, quickly, then verse 25 says, Then some of them of Jerusalem, this is a totally different crowd that comes along. These are people who are from the holy city. And they already know how much the religious rulers and the Sanhedrin hates Jesus. And they actually confirm the Lord's words. Remember when he went, said back in verse 19, Why go ye about to kill me? And the other Jewish people who came from all around said, You know, you have a devil. Nobody's out to kill you. Well, this Jerusalem crowd of people confirms the truth of his words because they say, Is not this he whom they seek? To kill. They knew. They knew their religious rulers wanted to kill him. So they see him standing in the middle of the temple, publicly teaching, and the, some of the Jews are standing in that crowd, and they're saying, wait a minute, 
Isn't he the one that they want to kill, that they've been combing the city asking about, saying, where is that deceiver? What's going on here? And then they get mocking, and they really are mocking their religious rulers when they say, but lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Here's where they're mocking. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? They say, oh, they must know that he's the Christ. That's why they're not doing anything about it. And then they, uh, they really know, that's a question asked where they know they think that it's a negative answer. And so they go on to, to justify why they say they know their religious rulers don't really believe he is the Christ, and that's because they say, verse 27, Howbeit we know this man whence he is. In other words, we know he can't be the Christ, and they know he can't be the Christ because we know where he came from. He didn't meet the criteria. We know that according to Micah 5.2, the Messiah would be born where? In Bethlehem. He didn't, he's from Nazareth. He doesn't, we know where he came from. The scripture says that there would be a mystery about his parentage, like Melchizedek. But we know his mother, Mary, and we know Joseph the carpenter. We know his brothers. He doesn't meet the criteria. The scripture says that he'd be hidden in obscurity uh, and then suddenly appear in the temple. But we know this guy. He's been around up in Galilee. You know what? He was obscure in Nazareth for 30 years, and when he did approach the scene, when he did come on the scene, first place he went was suddenly to the temple and cleansed it. You know, they thought they knew the facts, but they didn't know the facts at all. He said, but when Christ, they say, when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And I just can't imagine the Lord's frustration, although I guess he was sinless, so he never got frustrated, but... It says he cried out in the temple. Cried out, and that means he didn't need a megaphone. He was loud, and I can imagine the anguish in his voice as he says these next words. You know, he's standing. Just picture this in your mind. Millions of people in the temple. He's standing there in the one place in all the world, you know, in the temple where he once dwelt in the Shekinah glory above the Ark of the Covenant between the wings of the cherubim, among the Jewish people, in the holy city, in, you know, in the land of Israel, among, in the one place in the whole world where he should have been known, right? And yet he wasn't. And so he says in this loud voice, he says, ye both know me and ye know whence I am. In other words, he's saying, you think you know me and where I come from? And he goes on and he says, And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. Wow. What? I mean, he was not afraid of anybody. He said it like it was. He says, You guys think you know me? You don't know me at all. You don't even know the one who sent me. And they knew who they, he was claiming that sent him, God. So he's saying directly to them, You don't even know God. You think you're all about God and you think you have a monopoly on God? You don't even know God. Your hearts are full of murder. I just can't imagine his frustration. I get frustrated, but wow, I can't imagine. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And he says, this really got them. When he goes on and says, you know, you don't, you don't know God. But then he says, but I know him. For I am from him, and he hath sent me. Do you know how many times he says that? Oh, he's already said it over and over again, the Bread of Life sermon. But we're going to see as we study the book of John next year. We'll be in John a lot. He says it over and over and over and over. I didn't come on my own. I came from the Father that sent me. I'm the Bread of Life from heaven. I came, you know, and they don't get it, do they? But some do, and that's where we'll end this year on a good note. Some do get it. That's why you and I are here today, 2,000 years later. And some got it that day as the very Son of God stood in his temple and said these words. It's, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun. That's verse 31, but before we get to verse 31 is the bad news. The bad news is that they sought to take him because no man laid hand, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. When he said that, you don't know God, but I know him. 
then. They couldn't stand it anymore, and they went to lay hands on him, which wasn't to heal him. They went to arrest him. They were going to do him in. They probably would have taken him over somewhere and stoned him to death, but they couldn't. Why? And that again shows his deity, doesn't it? No one could touch him until it was his hour. And then still no one could have touched him. He laid down his own life. He gave up his own spirit. He was in control to the very end. Do you know that's true with you and I too? No one can touch us until it is our appointed time to go and be with him. Until then, we're untouchables. All right, now here's the good news. It says in verse 31, And many of the people believed on him. Praise the Lord. There is always that some who do listen to his words and come to faith in him. And said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? All right, I am sorry for keeping you over. Just think, you don't have to hear me for another three months. (laughs) Stay in the word this summer, though. Please stay in the word. Let's pray. Father, it is my earnest prayer here this morning that each woman in this study willingly, Father, willingly chooses to do your will, willingly chooses to live up to the light of truth that she presently knows about you because then your spirit can guide her to the place of assurance and solid rock faith in both the person and the teaching, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time spent in your word. And, Father, just help every woman here to spend this summer in your word getting to know you even better so that we all can come back together in the fall if you don't come before then and again praise and worship you and lift you up. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed, precious name. Amen.